Hi, everybody. It's Raghu Marcus from Mind Rolling. And this week, we're doing a special edition of Mind Rolling podcast. And uh, we're going to have Roshi Joan Halifax, who is one of the great Buddhist teachers in this country and a good friend of ours. And she was at the uh, retreat that uh, we had uh, in Maui with uh, Ram Das and Krishna Das this uh, recently, as a couple of months ago. And uh, I did a podcast with Duncan Trussell and Roshi and kind of moderated it a little bit. I wanted to let him have a go with Roshi. And we uh, came up with some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, uh, The topic of the retreat was uh, cultivating the courage to love. So we had a chat about that, and there's some real interesting things there around the Buddhist path versus the bhakti path uh, that I was kind of representing. And uh, so uh, delighted to to present this to you this week. David was not with us there, and so he will be absent from this mind rolling. Um, Also, we are in the last few days of our crowdfunding on Indiegogo to support MindPod Network, uh, develop the app that we need to have as a hub on everybody's smartphone for all of our offerings, not just the podcasts, but the, uh, the courses that we're going to be giving, the meditations, the meditation timer bells, the, the feed every morning of different wisdom, um, words of wisdom, wisdom articles, heart wisdom to wake you up in the morning. We have a whole plan of so many things to help keep us a little bit more aware and mindful every day. And uh, we need support to do it. This thing has become very, very much more than we had uh, anticipated starting it at the end of last year. So MindPod Network is uh, Ram Das and Krishna Das and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and Lama Surya Das and Tara Brock and Michael Donovan and uh, Chris Grasso. We have a whole incredible family here and soon to join us. And this is the big announcement is Joseph Goldstein, one of the three people, along with Sharon and Jack, to bring Vipassana and mindfulness to this country uh, from its origins in Burma. Uh, and that uh, we shall be uh, debuting his first podcast in the next uh, week or two, actually. So we are a little bit away from our goal. We're getting close. We only have a few days. I've been s- repeating this over and over. Please, if everyone just donated a small amount of money, we'll get over the top with this, or at least get close enough to be able to handle uh, the building of the app and the hiring of people that we need to do to create the content and the online courses and everything that people have been asking for. So to no further adieu, as I say, uh, here uh, is uh, myself and Roshi Joan Halifax and our podcast guru, Mr. Duncan Trussell. So go to mindpodnetwork.com and uh, hit the banner there. It takes you to the Indiegogo page. And please do help in these last few days to get us uh, to our goal. Thank you.
Look forward to next week. We'll be back with David and I and another special guest. We're rolling and we're we're mind rolling and we're Duncan Trussling. Family hour Yeah, something like that. Here with Roshi Joan Halifax. Who uh, Duncan, did you, you heard Duncan this morning when he when he was with Ramdas? You were really, really cute. Thank you. And really cute. And he said the first thing he said was, I am so, so scared <laughs> standing up here with you. Yes. And, uh, and of course, Ramdas put a pin in that right away, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. So, Roshi, Roshi, I've had two people in my life that were, well, the first one, to give you an idea, the first person was a man named Casey Tuari, who, if you watch the films of Maharaji, Neem Karoli Bama, you'll see he is... Uh, he was one for us. Maharaji would look at him and bang, he'd go into a deep samadhi of some sort, right? And he, if you will remember this, Mr. Natural, the comic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you know Mr. Natural? Yes, I do. Oh, my God. R. Crumb, yep. by the way. R. Crumb, get him. He was exactly like Mr. Natural. Every moment it was about awareness. I mean, he was one of Maharaji's closest devotees. But if he wasn't a Buddhist, I don't know who was. I mean, he was a Shaivite in the Hindu thing, but his whole thing with us was about being present. And he would remind us all the time, like in the cartoon, Mr. Natural, he would say one thing or another. If you think you're doing this, my boy, you're lost. <laughs> he would say things like that. <laughs> Second person in my life like this, who I discovered later in life is Roshi. Oh, no. Who's that? <laughs> so uh, you're coming here because Roshi never does anything, no bullshit ever, no matter what the situation. No trying to make nice. Right. And she has, and we've, we've gotten to know each other way better in the last couple of years only, a few years, through Ramdas. And... Um, I am so highly appreciative of you, and I'm telling this sincerely, of what uh, what you mean and and your work and so on and so forth. I I don't want to appear too dramatic. No, but, please don't. But so he's coming along, and he does stuff way worse than me. And wait till he does tell you about it. He does. Like he's what? like uh, unworthiness stuff. And oh well, I think that. You know, I think it's important to, I mean, I know ultimately there's no hierarchy, right? There's no hierarchy. Ultimately, everything's one, all one. But in some way, there has to be a hierarchy. And there should be, a, isn't in Zen, you are a, you are a Roshi. In Zen, there is, Zen Buddhism is systematically hierarchical in the way that it's structured, isn't it? Absolutely. And I am definitely on the bottom of the pile. Oh, really? Yeah, you don't a... seem like it. Oh, really? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean that uh, when, I, when I've been listening to your wonderful talks, uh, it feels like I am witnessing the thing that they call dharma transmission and the idea that you i feel like you are in a what they they call a lineage or a spiritual bloodline and when you were talking i can i feel like that's coming out of you so wherever that is as far as hierarchy goes it feels like um 
it feels to me as though I'm not just listening to you, but I'm listening to your teachers and their teachers, and it's coming out and it creates a very psychedelic feeling in me and I think the people listening. So I guess. Oh, well, good, good. Yeah, I do feel like um, I have a lot of men holding my back, and it's about time some women stepped into the line or got dragged into the line. I, it's kind of interesting. You look at my lineage chart and you see, oh, this is kind of fascinating. There's 81 guys behind me. Right. So one of the things that you you get a very strong feeling about is the gender bias and formal religion. And we're in a phase shift now. And with that is a lot more lateralization. Things are a little more equal. Right. Yes, for, for sure. And, and I know that uh, Zen, along with all other organized religious structures mostly have been patriarchal up until this point and there seems to be everything's kind of shifting in that way but it seems like the thing that's coming out of you is way outside of gender it's way outside of everything and um i was wondering if i could get you to repeat that evening prayer that you oh yeah yeah, that's wonderful. So the prayer, um, if you will, it's uh, it has two parts. And uh, the first part of it um, are, are the four vows uh, that are the bodhisattva vows. And they're, they're impossible assignments. And as such, then very liberating. And so the first one goes, creations are numberless. I vow to free them. And this, this is about everything. This is, you know, every ant who's suffering, every ahi and mahi mahi, if you will, that gets served for lunch. Um, but also every creation of the mind. And there's this vow that you take to, uh, in every breath to liberate all beings, including the internal beings, which are the thoughts and the feelings and the sensations. So it's a very, um, for me, functional vow because it points right to the big assignment, free, free. And then the second is delusions are inexhaustible. And boy, uh, do we ever know that. Uh, I vow to transform them. And what's interesting about that vow in the Chinese, actually, it goes, I vow to end them all. But as a woman, I'm a little bit more pragmatic. I want to, you know, it's like my assignment is to kind of get in there and just sort of, you know, work with things. So, Oh, you changed it. To yeah, transform. I know. It's bad. I loved it. Yeah. No, I Thanks. love that. That's so much better. <laughs> yes. No, that makes so much more sense, too. So much more pragmatic. Well, my own teacher, uh, one of my own teachers, but really my favorite is uh, Glassman Roshi, and he really objected to uh, that particular translation. It's not a translation. It's an adaptation. I personally think that these vows need to um, uh, be made relevant. They're not like antiquarian vows. This is about now. And so, you know, when we first used the word transform, he was, you know, kind of objective. And then um, we're persistent and consistent, and uh, he actually has adopted it, which makes me feel, you know, slightly victorious. Uh, but never mind. 
Oh, yeah. Bernie Glassman, Roshi. Oh, you said Bernie Glassman. Oh, I didn't hear that. Bernie Glassman. Okay. Yeah, but is he alive? He's alive so far, you know, as alive as we are. Yeah, of course. And then um, the next one is very beautiful. Reality is boundless. And uh, then you're invoked, I vow to perceive it. And that's like the whole assignment. I mean, can you really see things clearly? And then the awakened way is unsurpassable. Then I vow to embody it. And that's like, no, I'm not going to just think about it. I'm not going to just pray about it. I'm going to embody it. So one of the cool things about Zen is how directed toward the body it is. It's understanding that our bodies are actually conditioning our mind and that it's a two-way street. The mind conditions the body, too, and the mind is embedded in the body, and the body carries the mind. But here, um, this is to, like, I vow to walk the talk. Right. And then there is the... Then there is what's called the evening gata. And that goes... And, you know... I don't always do it because it's usually done at the end of the day. So the last thing that is transmitted to you at the end of the day are these words. And they're scary as hell. And it is, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. And then let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. Ooh, <laughs> so it's great. You know, that's like the assignment. And you say that every night. Every well, when we're intensive retreat, and I say it on the night of retreats that I'm leading, because you know, I think you can spend a little bit of time considering. We don't know when we're going to die. That's right. We could be young, or we could get to be really, really old. But don't squander it. Use your life as a vehicle for awakening for all beings. So that's, you know, not everybody has that sense of urgency. And my sense of urgency might have come out of um, my, you know, childhood being really sick and being born during the Second World War and then being a young person in the civil rights and anti-war movement. But also in the middle of that urgency is a kind of stillness. So, you know, there's sort of working two sides of the street you know one side of the street is has this sort of ferocious energy um and and the other side is this this uh deep quiet inside it comes from confidence that no everything is characterized by impermanence everything is transitory and um who knows what's going to happen the next minute and why not be an ally to uncertainty and you are um Truly walking the walk, because at this moment, when I came here to record the podcast, and we came here to record the podcast, I could hear you in the other room, and I, I'm not positive what you were talking about. I wasn't eavesdropping, but I know that you are right now in the midst of doing this retreat, which seems to me, even though I'm sure it's not for you, like it would be an incredibly stressful thing to every single day have to guide a group of people who've flown from all over the planet, uh, wanting something who are and a lot of them are going through some heavy duty stuff i imagine that that's a we would feel like a very great weight to me but on top of that mm -hmm. one ball that you're juggling 
you're also doing everything you can to try to help the earthquake-stricken people in Nepal. So that's all that. So in your spare time, instead of doing what I would do, which would be to watch forensic files, <laughs> you are you're 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 working nonstop to help people in a distant part of the world. Can you, can you talk a little bit well, about that? You know, it's more fun than watching forensic files. I mean, that really sounds horrible, uh, quite frankly. You know, I mean, I just have this real connection with Nepal, and I've had it for, you know, decades, and the people are incredibly resilient. And this earthquake is an enormous catastrophe. And, you know, each of us, if we just do a little bit, that's grace. You know, I can't, I can't do more than a little bit, but, you know, in the last 24 hours, we managed to be part of a, a thinking, doing team that has put together hundreds of filtrate, water filtration systems in a place where cholera is going to be a big threat because there's no clean water in, you know, the Kathmandu Valley. It's just hardly clean water there anyway. But right now, with all the systems down and out, and, you know, we're now looking at how can we get a half a million dollars worth of tarps into the outlying areas. And so it's just, um, my assistant, Nova, calls it parallel processing. You know, it's a whole bunch of people feeling this and thinking together and strategizing and one coming up with an idea and another one making that idea a little bit better and a third one seeing the solution and then us collaborating. And it's real. I think it's a fantastic process. And one of the things that's really helping this whole process in Nepal is... Um, the is our, our social platforms. I mean, more information has go, gone down on Facebook than on CNN with regards to right. what, what is really happening. I can't get any, any emails going between here and Nepal, or very, very few. But in terms of Facebook messaging, wow. I, my, my Facebook message hopper is just flooded with messages of, you know, this is needed, that's needed, this is how we do it, and so forth. So it's, and a tremendous amount of information is being posted at this point by people in Nepal. Unfortunately, I have a lot of friends in Nepal on my Facebook page. So, you know, they're posting, in some cases, minute by minute, what, what's happening. Can, can, you, can you talk a little bit about what the situation on the ground is like over there so that people listening can understand just how severe the situation is in case because amazingly some people that i've spoken with are not even aware that an earthquake has happened weirdly well they should you know huh? get a, they should you know get a little behind the That's program possible. it's possible I, my gosh well let me say one of the really cool things that's happening there's a big gap between uh, the aid that uh, the government, the Nepali government, is really uh, obligated to provide and what's going down on the ground. And so what's happening is young people are self-organizing. And they're, you know, getting their trucks and they're buying rice with what, you know, money they have. And they're delivering rice and tarps and fresh water out to outlying villages. And what I really love is that um, uh, what you're seeing, you're also seeing frustration and there have been some, you know, 
uh, protest events and things like that. But what I really am seeing is um, the heart of Nepali people. There's an immense resilience in that country. And that resilience um, has, you know, been in the face of 12 years of civil war, no infrastructure that's any good in that country, or very little that's any good. And yet the people just have some kind of directness and joy and lack of neurosis. And I, I really go every year to Nepal as a kind of psychological cure from Western culture. I mean, you know, we, we go with our nomads clinic, which is organized through Upaya Zen Center, and I've been doing it since 1980, but it's just incredibly beneficial for Westerners to be with people who are so, you know, unbelievably powerful that something like this, which is tragic, which is hypertraumatic, stressful, um, is something that they will get past and they'll rebuild what I feel we have to do right now is take care of kind of on-the-ground practical things like water filtration and tarps because um, monsoon looks like it's coming early. And that's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mess. <coughs> Hundreds of thousands of homes have been completely demolished in this earthquake. So, you know, we have a lot of... Uh, Hundreds uh, of thousands. Right. You know, this, these are mud and stone homes. But these are homes. Yeah. They're homes. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, the, the, when those, you know, when I think about, because it's so, it's it really is, the news can accidentally turn you into a sociopath because the numbers are so big. When you hear possibly 5,000, maybe 10,000 people have died, you're, you have it's hard to have a real reaction to that number because you only know how many people do you know in your life? How many people do you know? You know, uh, there's this thing, Dunbar's number. Have you ever heard of that? Dunbar's number is the maximum number of social connections a person can theoretically have in their mind. And it's process. 150. That's it. 150. I remember now. 150. 150. So I don't think I know 150 people. And maybe I, I mean, I know many, many people, but how many people do you know that you talk with on the phone? It's what, 30, 20? And so then when you think, oh, 10,000. For you, it's well, different. No, for you, Duncan, I think it's different, frankly. And I think also for you, Raghu, you guys are, you know, working in the public arena in but it's incredible ways. I just mean, you, when, when you hear, so when you hear 10,000 people, you're hearing about 10,000 mini apocalypses yeah. that have happened. You're hearing about holes in families that will never be healed, brothers and sisters of just gone. And, 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 and not only are you left without your home is crumbled and you have nothing, but possibly your entire family is gone. So when you consider that that's the reality of the situation over there, that fills you uh, with a kind of, this feeling that you get when you do the first vow, yeah, which is I, there's well, I can't do a thing. It's just too much to bear. I'm not going to deal with this at all. That's for a lot. I think a lot of people feel like that. And then people like you are like, no, we're getting them tarps. We'll just get them tarps. We'll get them water filters and tarps. I think that's the coolest thing ever. You know, futility is a kind of stupid thing, but a lot of people suffer from it. And, uh, you know, I actually am not in the favor, in favor of futility. 
but there's something more, and that is that um, those of us who've been to Nepal uh, often return again and again. Why? Because the people have a kind of special spirit which exists in few places in the world. And I think that's what we're seeing. In the midst of tragedy, what you're seeing is dignity, determination, and love. And that's, you know, you, you're drawn into that. You're not drawn into despair. You're drawn, you're inspired. And I think that's why there's been such an extraordinary response at the sort of um, uh, public in general level to what's happening in Nepal. Because so many of us have been over there, even if only one time, you still have the same feeling. This is one of those treasures in the world, not just the architectural and historical treasure. It's the treasure of the Nepali heart. And then you see, you know, all of this uh, work that's going on as it will become more and more apparent through time at the sort of grassroots level instead of uh, the grassroots level just sort of caving, giving up, drying up. The grassroots level is really energized by service. And what I'm seeing is the younger generation really stepping into the gap. And I love it. It's Well, you know, I when you were talking this morning about uh, Facebook and how amazing the, the what's happening through Facebook, um, I, I was wondering if you were familiar with Kurzweil at all, with Ray Kurzweil yeah. and that concept of ex, the accelerating returns mm-hmm. and how technology... Uh, has the potential not just for to destroy the planet, which a lot of people are worried about, but also to heal things in a, a way that has never been possible before. Yeah, I completely agree. I think Ray Kurzweil has fantastic ideas. And um, I think that uh, Nepal is a very interesting and, and moving example of how social media is actually, as as has in other situations, <clears throat> Social media is providing the platform for people to find each other, but also find themselves. I want to switch gears. Okay. Um, We're at this retreat, and you just told that lovely koan, that lovely story. There's two of them, and the first one around the tree. Would you mind telling that again, and then two uh, the podcast audience. Before that story, I'm sorry. Can I please get? Just could you say the link really quick? If I don't mean to turn this into some kind of telethon or something, but <laughs> it is imminent what's happening. And if you could just say that link really quick, so that if people want to chip in to help you get some yeah. over there. So um, if you uh, can, if you will, I would really appreciate it. It's www.upaya.org and you'll see the banner and there's a photograph of me, a child who's been badly burned, but you know, who's been bandaged by, you know, clinicians in our nomads clinic. And you, you'll see a link immediately to be able to do- donate to the earthquake relief fund. And Upaya is U-P? U-P-A-Y-A. Dot com. Dot org. Dot org. Dot org. dot org. I'll have links in my And you'll website. have links, and they'll be on MindPod Network, too. Um, Thanks. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Tell well, us. Well, you know, this is called Kyogen's Man in a Tree. And um, I'm particularly fond of this koan because koans are these public cases, these little Zen stories 
that um, are about the nature of our mind, and not just the nature of mind, but the nature of one's mind in both the sense of emptiness and the relative aspect. And what is so wonderful for me about this koan is, you know, in Western culture, we're so damn solution-oriented. We've got an answer for every question. We've got a solution for every problem. And can you basically hang out in not knowing? So I already gave you, you know, the big secret right there. Uh, and I had to really smile yesterday because, uh, you know, th these are audience, the audience here in Ram Dass's retreat. It's all love, serve, remember, and serve is all solution-oriented. And so everybody had a good idea, but it wasn't the right one. But never mind. So it goes like this. There's a man hanging in a tree by his teeth being wrapped around a branch. His feet can't touch the tree. His hands can't touch the tree. He's just hanging there. Underneath him walks another man. And that man said, Hey, why does Bodhidharma come from the West? You could say, why does Baba Ramdas come from the West? But yeah, it's Bodhidharma. Now, if the man opens his mouth to answer, he falls to his death. But if he doesn't open his mouth to say anything. He doesn't help the other guy. End of case. You know... It's infuriating. It is infuriating. It's infuriating. <laughs> and, and, and it's not just that. Your, te your teaching in the best way possible has... It creates this very specific feeling that that's, drives you crazy. <laughs> And, and do you know what I mean? And I'm good. Mean I, I thought I was driving you sane. <laughs> I think so. But it's that, you know, you're, you're saying here, this is an answerless thing and you can let your mind whirl around all you want, but you're not going to find a solution. But then the first day you were talking about how in these, we're always wanting to know what's going to happen next. And you called it radical insecurity. Yeah. And I felt like when you're at the chiropractor, when you said that and someone like cracks your back <laughs> when you said that, because, because that feeling of, of insecurity, I try to escape from that, that I would say 80% of my calories are being burnt trying to escape that feeling. Well, that's a very low percentage considering the average is much higher. Wow. Cool. <laughs> it just shows you how awake you are. All right. <laughs> But can you talk a little bit about this, this radical insecurity, this, this, uh, how that, that feeling of, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm losing it is actually something perhaps not, not to be avoided. Well, I, I think the earthquake in Nepal is a perfect example. There are all kinds of predictions that an earthquake was going to happen, but they didn't know what was going to happen noon last Saturday. You just don't know. And your life could end in a moment. But I, I, my first Zen teacher was this amazing and very funny Korean named Sung Sang. Sung Sang Sunsanim. And Sunsanim used to say things like, only keep don't know mind. You know, only keep don't know mind. And I, I actually thought it was like a Chinese fortune cookie. That was kind of, well... That's yeah. kind of stupid, except that here it is 40 years later, and I'm still saying it, and I'm, I'm kind of beginning to resonate with what he means. And that is this mind that is, um, Suzuki Roshi called it beginner's mind. 
And uh, it, it's that mind that is really fresh. It's not caught in hyperconceptuality. It's not seeking solutions. It's super in the be here now-ness of it. And that's just so incredibly powerful. It's not to say that the past isn't in the present and the future isn't right here. But it's also to have this kind of radiance of this is what is right now. And any place other than where we are right in this now, which includes the past and the future, will be also shaded or shadowed by fear. So, you know, that's a really, so my thing is, is, you know, working with dying people and psychedelics and then, you know, years ago and the kind of uh, work that I've done in the prison system and then just, you know, working as a Zen teacher, you're always in this state of radical uncertainty. You never know what's going to happen with any student, anything. I, I kind of love to say, you know, open up to get uh, the students talking because that's when I'm kind of most alive. I feel like, wow, that's really interesting. Gee, that was a really good point. And that was so stupid, you know. <laughs> but those are just opinions. But it is this sense of not knowing, what Bernie Glassman, uh, Roshi, talks about, not knowing. Um, and there's a wonderful line from a on that goes, not knowing is most intimate. I mean, our no mind. Our knowing mind separates us from each other in this moment. So it's a really, I think it's a really cool thing. I want to get back to the koan, though. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know you had left it. Oh, I have never left it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Actually, um, well, I'm going to represent the love and lighters. Trump or Rinpoche Oy. used to call us love and lighters, you see, and you still do. And I'm not the, even Jewish, and I can say oi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so representing the love and lighters from that koan thing, right? All right, you tell me. Okay, so this is completely, and you're, it's oh, archetypically no. that. I, when you did, to said, right, up, okay, now, what is it that you experience in this koan? What what can you identify your initial thing, right? Whatever you said. You ready? I'm I'm listening. I'm all ears. Christ. Okay. What do you mean? Uh, he uh, that the there's nothing else but to give yourself completely up under any circumstances. So what would that look like? So that would be him. Letting go, I guess, of the tree, right? I know. Okay, now I need you to dissect it. I'm not going to dissect it. That's your trip. I have you know, no it's idea. to have some kind of idea about it. But that's an interesting idea. I, you know, Christ didn't exactly let go of the tree. He was nailed onto it. <laughs> so, excuse me. He probably wished he could have. No. That's the point. He let himself be nailed to the tree, to, right? He let that happen. Weren't you brought up Christian, Roshi? I mean, don't blame me for something <laughs> I couldn't avoid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I re okay, honestly, mm -hmm. and then take it further that uh, the whole thing of uh, for us, Christ and Hanuman, the same energy of of complete utter devotion to service 
You know, I this today I, sh- I I shared a perspective which was a little bit different, and it's kind of interesting because the ego can get involved in devotion. There's the self, and there's the other. There's the object of devotion, and then you know you're all this wonderful kind of uh, Christ energy or Hanuman energy or you know Bodhisattva madly running around saving all sentient beings from suffering. But there's a very uh, deep uh, image in Zen that I think is kind of interesting. And that is um, instead of, you know, Hanuman, right, that feeling, it's actually of a wooden puppet. And what is pulling the strings of the puppet? Suffering. And so there's no self there. There's no idea there. There's not even will or desire. So at the very deepest level, there's no self to be devoted. There's no nothing to be devoted to. You're just responding seamlessly to the world of suffering as it is without any reference. And that's a really interesting image, I feel. I mean, it's kind of... When I find myself involved in self-conscious altruism... Um, instead of uh, altruism, which is principled and healthy and where there's really no self and other, um, even though the word altruism pre- pre- presumes other, but you know, somehow self-other, the self-other distinction drops away. You know, then there's no, way, there's no way I can be tired. You know, just this I'm responding to. That I'm responding to. I'm in this seamless relationship with the world as it is, including the world of suffering and the world of joy. So the wood puppet's really kind of an interesting, but you know, people don't like it because it's, you know, it's no not way. the monkey god. It's like no way, you know. It's not the it's it's not the beautiful long-haired blue-eyed Christ, and it's also not the monkey god. It's a wooden puppet, which is a kind of dead thing. And that deadness is mm-hmm. um, an example. There's no devotion. There's no not devotion. It's an example of fundamental, unconditional equanimity. It's just that openness to things as they are. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, but, I love the love stuff. I mean, you know, don't don't let me you know, discourage anybody from devotion or love. Well, see, there's those of us that we have no chance at all. We don't have the discipline. We can't sit with our backs straight and our front soft very well. Oh, please, Raku. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. You know what I feel like? I feel like I'm watching a a very sweet parent Telling their child that there's no Santa Claus and then being like, but it's okay if you still want to believe in Santa Claus. It's just not real. And that's what I love about Buddhism is because it does. Because here's the even though. Wait, wait. Before you get into this, I have been with somebody. Children. Yeah. (laughs) uh, That what Roshi is talking about, I experienced in another being, complete, absolute emptiness of anything. And as Ramdas said today, when I met Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba, I saw him as a, as a um, something for humans to look to as a possibility to be. So see, I think Neem Karoli Baba is more like a Buddhist or a Buddha than um, almost any other of the spiritual teachers 
that I've read about, heard about, or encountered who are not Buddhist, but per se. I mean, you know, he wasn't looking for devotion. Now, there were tons of people attracting massive amounts of it. People were going to trance in his presence, and people have created a whole religious movement out of him. But actually... You go that far, religious uh, movement. Well, I don't know. I it's think, uh, you know, I think R.D. is, you, you know, head of the, out of the club. He's the club meister. (laughs) But, you know, he wasn't looking to do that. There was no self in there, you know, trying to magnetize people to do anything. You know, he's, as far as I could tell from just listening to you guys, mostly guys, some women, but in listening to you talk over these years is, um, this was a very empty dude. Yeah, and in that... You did a workshop some time ago with Frank Ossieski and mm-hmm. Ramdas, and he went into that space, and you commented on it afterwards because in that space of completely feeling that total love that he experienced back then, in this moment, he said he's just so empty, yeah. so empty, and that that was the essence. And do you know that one day Krishnadas and I were, went to see Maharaji? And a lot of stuff happened. I won't get into it because it's a long story. But at one point, Krishnadas had a, a book. He keeps stuff in the diary. He had it with him. And in it, he had written some of the Mahamudra. He just wrote some of the verses down. And then next page, he had a picture of Maharaji. It was that kind of a thing. Maharaji says, show me that. And he takes the book, and he had to translate it. He, Teak, he went right to the Mahamudra, Song mm-hmm. of the Mahamudra. He flipped the page over and he saw a picture of himself that Krishnas had put it. He just, he said, who's that? Mm-hmm. You know, and he was always playing with little kids. It's you, Maharaj. Nay, Buddha. More than once did he do that. And not only that, he's, I mean, this isn't that he meant he was Buddha, but it, it was you, a complete... You're expressing... Yeah, it, no, that's not. Because you can't hear it for, for the podcast, but you, you're expressing some skepticism in regards to that claim. No, I mean... Well, I, no, it I, wasn't a claim that he was a living Buddha. It was absolutely taking us... Beyond, what you're saying, exactly, beyond anything of yeah. him being Hindu mm-hmm. or only giving Hindu teachings. Of course, he taught about Christ. Buddha just means awake. Yeah, right. Just, you know, yeah. he, he's saying... I'm awake. That's what the Buddha said, by the way. I'm awake. Mm. But he's just saying awake. Exactly. And and not the historical Buddha. And we don't yeah. want you know. And I think that's the that's freedom. And I feel like, you know, in his um sort of sleepy way, because, you know, I always see Neem Crowley Bobby's, you know, doing s- sort of supine, and there he's got his little Linus blanket, and, you know, he's there with his and little... Sleeping. Sleeping, sometimes. you know, and it's... Uh, and, um, but he's actually, uh, in the paradox, he's like super awake. Yeah, right. That's exactly what it was, exactly. You know? Being in that presence, yeah. but it's you so, know he's so let go. It's like he was in the cradle and totally in beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. But you know it's the empty feeling. That's why I always you know I'd look at his eyes and I realize you know the thing that I feel even looking at Neem Gurli Baba's picture is I feel that he sees who I really am, which is not a devotee. Mm-hmm. That he's perceiving my emptiness from his emptiness. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, that's what it all is in terms of reflection of, of these beings, too. So I look at you know devotion in a certain way as an, a, a beautiful intermediate intermediate stage. You know that um, evocation needs an object uh, of love, mm-hmm. and that evocation, the feeling of evocation of other, you know, allows love to flow. But then, as love matures, then in a way, it empties out completely into the boundless. But you, you, maybe you've done another billion lives or something. I You're already so. at that I'm doorstep. Just, I don't think so. It is interesting, though, because I, you know, the last podcast we did with Ramdas, it was so funny to me because you, you, you both seem to really disagree on this point, and 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 you both seem to disagree, even though there's the way that you disagree is very respectful and very. No, I don't, wait, I don't disagree anything that you may, just may, said I, at I, all. I'm not trying to stir anything up here, but no, it, no. Does, it does feel <laughs> it does feel like uh, when you say an intermediary stage. So you have yes. bhakti. You have the object. You know, this is some form of bhakti. Here is the object that you love. Here is the lover. You have these two things. There is a duality. There, there is a duality here. Yes, and and with what. What you are, seem to be talking about, <clears throat> and I only know it from reading books and maybe a couple of acid trips, is this idea of, well, more than a couple of acid trips, but I, I've had more, but a couple of good ones. What you're talking what this thing that you're pointing to is just this, this one thing. And you can't have in this one thing an object of devotion. And you can't have... The moment that that happens, the one thing is now two things. And then the two things become a trillion things. And the trillion things become a trillion things. And the whole thing breaks apart. So when you say intermediary, it feels like you're saying... Or intermediate. Intermediate. Yeah. At I, some you know, point, that has to go. But, that, but I also, you know, I can disagree with myself, which I enjoy doing. <laughs> and that is that this experience of... Um, what Sokhtim Rupesheke calls juicy love, is incredibly healing. You know, it's just, it's not what he calls greasy love, you know, this kind of syrupy, sappy thing. Um, it, it, it's more <laughs> greasy, greasy, greasy love, love. Greasy love. Yeah, wow. this is juicy love. And that, um, you know, the trap, of course, of uh, emptiness or the trap of boundlessness is just being so spaced out that nothing matters. And that it's really important to have both. You know, I mean, I think juicy love is really important. I think it's incredibly healing. I think that also it takes you into this experience of absolute connection. I think having a yidam, having a, an object of devotion, which actually reflects, reflects your own Buddha nature back to you, is a fantastic thing. It's a upaya. It's a device hmm. to point to something that is beyond language, beyond words. So you've contradicted yourself. Yeah, I enjoy that. Not really, but well, not really, and because you also say I come to every winter, I come to see Ramdas for a heart transplant. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that in public. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, don't. We don't. Of course, Roshi is perfectly fine. Everybody, 
This is no reflection on I know. I wrote a friend of mine uh, who's had actually some cardiac problems. I said, you know, dear so-and-so, I'm here in Maui having a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back in about a half a second, are you okay? What's going on? (laughs) No, it's more, um, you know, it's... It has to do, for me, with um, uh, metta, loving kindness. You know, hanging out with um, people where there's uh, a lot of joy, where there's a lot of acceptance, um, where there's trust is um, very wonderful. Very, It's like nourishing the human psyche. Now, Artie would call it soul, we, we won't get into that discussion, uh, please. But um, anyway. No, we should. We should. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time. Or no, no, no. Remember that podcast where Ram Dass, because Ram Dass <laughs> says, this is the funniest thing ever. And your interaction with the way you two interact is so fun to watch. Uh, but Ram Dass said, this is, remember he said, this is my fantasy. You know, in the midst of this, because we were talking about the soul and you, I could see you know, it's easy to see what you think as far as that goes. And he's like, well, it's my fantasy. And you go, finally, after all these years, I get you to admit yeah. it. And, and uh, I think it's cool. I think it's, I don't think you have to tiptoe around the fact that maybe there isn't a soul. And I think that the idea that there is a soul or, or whatever that is, is sometimes I like that idea and I enjoy the idea. But sometimes I think this is a teddy bear. This is an imaginary friend. This is like my pacifier but, when I was a kid. You know what? Look, I'm being serious, though. No, no, we're being serious. Oh, we are? Yeah. Oh. I don't think this... He he has that as a nomenclature soul, but ultimately, I don't think he thinks it's any different than Buddha mind. So, you know, I have a different idea, but it's an, just another idea. I actually wrote about it. In this book I, I wrote years ago called The Fruitful Darkness. And um, the for me, the principle of soul, and this really comes out of the fact that I'm from the South and um, was, you know, uh, fortunately uh, able to be nourished by people who were not from my immediate community. And what when people in this other community that I cherished um, would talk about soul, they weren't talking about some kind of monad that's sitting inside of you, a little, you know, happy homunculus, if you will. (laughs) You know, a happy homunculus, (laughs) you know, your little soul that's going to go tripping out of your whatever. Um, But it has to do with some kind of connectivity with, you know, your deep heart. So when you say, my God, that person's got soul, you know, you know what they're talking about because you can look in that person's eyes and you can see right to their essence. So that's what I feel is, you know, really important. That kind of, you know, immediate, powerful transparency, which is characterized also by love. Right. Right, because who knows what soul is, and who knows what Buddha mind is. I'm so glad you're saying this, Raghu, you know. I've had this, you know, he's publicly (laughs) humiliated me so many times. You know, he says, well, you know, Jones, you know, Jones. Yeah, and then he smiles, he flashes those teeth at me, you know, those kind of that dragon mouth, and I'm like... 
Thanks a lot. You know, I'm going to look like a bad person no, if we continue goes, this conversation. He says soul, <laughs> and then he goes like this. <laughs> oh, he knows that um, we like to tease each other mercilessly. We, we don't know anything. Right. That's the bottom line. That's it. Not knowing is most intimate. And and in the podcast that uh, when you first met Roshi at that retreat a couple of years ago, and then we sat around the table, and uh, there was a beautiful reference, which was making friends with the mystery yeah. from Roshi. And that has stuck with me. Mm. And I think mm. that that is uh, so essential for us to be able to make friends with the mystery. What yeah. a relief. It's such a burden to have to worry your mind over the idea that God is a monkey or that God is some beautiful <laughs> hippie with washboard abs or that God is any it's really kind of a bummer you know what it's a bit of a bummer if it really boils down to it where that's it really God's got washboard abs and that's it that's it it's such more of a relief if it's something you have no idea what it is there's something much more exciting about that isn't the question mark is a wonderful thing to worship. So this is the essence of Kilgan's man in a tree. Back to the koan. Mm. Exactly. You know, how can you just hang there in not knowing? How can you really be a friend to uncertainty? Why do you always seek a solution as a reference point? So it's such a, you know, I mean, I, I've actually shared that koan with uh, a number of different people in, you know, various teachings. And everybody goes for the solution because they need some kind of safe toehold. You know, they need a place to kind of pl put their flag. But actually, it's about groundlessness. It's your feet can't really land on anything. And I like it a lot. Oh, that's so good. It's wonderful. Uh, we, we are at 49 minutes. So. Oh, okay, God. so this Four is it. It's over her, uh, Roshi's... Uh, Commitment. <laughs> thank you so much then, for this. Thank you. We have to say, um, please do go to upaya.org. And uh, it is a way to directly get... Uh, I even said to Roshi, because my other hat is uh, the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation... And I said to Roshi, we want to help as well, but we need you to make sure it, it, she, she would vet where that this money, how it would go through the funnel that would go directly to the people. So that is happening, everybody. That is happening. So please do go. And also, um, Roshi, the, the last book that you just mentioned it is it's still available, is oh, it? Oh, yeah, Grove so, Press, you know, it was published first by Harper's, and then I think it went somewhere else. But anyway, Grove Press uh, has it out there, and it's still going. And what is it? It's now 25 years old. I won't tell anybody that, that that's really the, the number. Again? It's called the, the Fruitful Darkness. Because that's not something I was aware of. That's why I personally am going yeah, to Yeah, it's not it. in the bookstore. And actually, yeah. I, I had more fun, more joy writing that oh, book. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah, you can get it on Amazon, Kindle, or paperback, so. The Fruitful. The Fruitful Darkness. Darkness. All links are going to be at DuncanTrussell.com. And MindPodNetwork.com. Great. Yes. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.